Heavenly Father, we just come before you uh, as we open your word this morning and just pray as we begin this journey through the Lenten season, uh, Lord, that you would just begin a new work in each of us. Uh, God, as, as resurrection people, uh, we believe in a new life after death. And so, Lord, uh, whatever uh, needs to be uh, put to death in each of us, uh, Lord, whether it's uh, desires uh, or temptations, sins, fightings, fears within, without, God, whatever it is that needs to be put to death so that your resurrection life and power might be at work in us, Lord, would you accomplish that through this time? And so, Lord, we just humble ourselves now as we approach your word this morning. Lord, we just thank you for your spirit, which is with us in this place, in this moment. And we just ask that you speak to us now through your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Uh, well, uh, as I mentioned, today is the, the first Sunday of Lent, uh, which uh, Lent began with Ash Wednesday this, this past week. Um, and uh, for those of you who may not have grown up in a church uh, that observes the tradition of Lent, um, Lent is a, a season of 40 days leading up to Easter, not counting Sundays, which represents the time that Jesus spent fasting in the wilderness, uh, enduring temptation uh, from Satan and preparing to begin his ministry. So if you read that story in the Bible where, where Jesus spends that 40 days fasting in the wilderness, that's where uh, the, we take the 40 days of Lent from. Um, and like Jesus fasted in the wilderness for 40 days as a way to prepare himself for ministry, uh, Christians throughout the centuries has, have observed Lent as a 40-day period of repentance, fasting, and preparation for the coming of Easter. Um, and oftentimes, you'll, you'll hear people talking about giving up something for Lent. Uh, which means that they've chosen to fast from something uh, in observance of Lent. Um, and uh, each year for the past 10 years, there's a website called uh, openbible.info that has tracked what people have said that they are giving up for Lent uh, on Twitter. Um, and according to them, uh, here are the top five things that people are giving up for Lent this year. Uh, number one is social networking. Anybody doing a uh, Facebook fast for Lent or anything? Okay, we got a couple uh, doing a social networking fast. Uh, number two is alcohol. I won't ask for a show of hands on that one. Um, <laughs> number three uh, is, uh, ironically, uh, Twitter uh, that people are giving up and saying on Twitter that they were giving up Twitter for Lent. Uh, number four is uh, chocolate. Uh, and then uh, number five is, get this, Lent. Okay, uh, so 2019, what a time to be alive. Um, and coming in at number 11 on the list was fast food, um, and the Star Tribune in Minnesota uh, took it upon themselves to chart the, the types of fast food that people have said that they are giving up for Lent. You probably can't read this, um, but uh, Chick-fil-A has surpassed McDonald's. Okay, so more people are giving up Chick-fil-A this year uh, than they are giving up McDonald's. Uh, now, why you would give up God's chicken for Lent is beyond me, um, but I digress. Uh, so the point I'm trying to make is that, that Lent uh, is meant to be a season of spiritual preparation, of renewal, of, of journeying with Jesus to the cross and beyond. 
um, as we journey with Jesus to the cross, we need to ask this question. Why was the cross necessary? Why was the cross necessary? Most of us uh, here this morning are, are likely familiar with the basic truth that Jesus died on the cross so that we could be forgiven of our sins and inherit, inherit eternal life through Him. And that's good news, amen? Because that's, that's part of the message of the cross. But was the cross just about our personal salvation? You know, did Jesus die just so you and I could be forgiven of our sins and go to heaven someday? Or is it bigger than that? When I was a kid, I used to play Monopoly with my cousins all the time. And apparently, uh, because of that, we were really boring kids. I mean, what kids sit around and play Monopoly? Um, but if you've ever played Monopoly, uh, you know it usually takes forever, right? And, and that one of the worst things that can happen to you is landing on the go-to-jail spot on the board because then you have to sit there in jail for the next three turns and you try to roll doubles while everybody else keeps playing unless, of course, you have a get-out-of-jail-free card. Now, I'll be the first to admit that when I was a kid... Um, I basically saw the cross as a get-out-of-jail-free card. Right? That if you believe in Jesus, you're forgiven for all the bad stuff you do, which means you, you don't have to pay the penalty for it. And not only that, but you know, you're pretty much guaranteed boardwalk with four houses and a hotel when you die. So that's pretty cool. But the longer I've been a follower of Jesus, the more I've realized that the cross is about so much more than just my personal salvation. Because the truth is, Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection from the dead was a turning point in a story that God had been writing for thousands of years. And if we can begin to understand that story, we can begin to understand what Jesus accomplished on the cross and what it means for our lives today. So that's the goal of this series, is to journey through the Old Testament in order to get a sense of the larger story leading up to Easter. And the way we're going to be doing that is by looking at five major turning points in the story of the Bible that point us to Jesus. And those five turning points are defining moments in the relationship between God and God's people. And each one has something different to teach us about why Jesus came. We refer to these turning points in the Bible as covenants. But we know them better today as treaties. Um, and if you're familiar with what a treaty is, it's a, it's a binding formal agreement between two nations. Uh, it can be for purposes of peace, alliance, commerce, trade, or other international relations. And in Old Testament times, treaties were just as common as they are today, uh, but the language and practices surrounding them were quite different. Um, so we're going to take a few weeks to try to understand several of the major treaties or covenants that we find in the Old Testament and see what they have to teach us about Jesus as we journey towards the cross. Sound good? Can we do that? No? Yes? Okay. All right, cool. So we'll do it. Um, all right, so today um, we're going to be uh, looking at one of the first and most basic covenants that we find in the Bible, uh, which happens at the very beginning, and I mean the very beginning of the Bible. And it's an agreement established between God and humanity which helps us understand the whole rest of the story of the Bible. All right, so go ahead and uh, open up your Bibles uh, to Genesis chapter 2. Um, and we're just going to look at a few elements of this story 
uh, together this morning. Um, and uh, before we jump into the story, I want to set it up for you in terms of covenant. Um, the reason that, that covenants or treaties were so common in biblical times was because there was a lot of war happening, um, especially in the area where most of the Old Testament takes place. Um, so the land of the Old Testament was sandwiched between two military superpowers uh, who were constantly duking it out. All right, And I have a, a map here. Uh, so you had uh, Egypt to the west, um, and you had Mesopotamia to the east. Um, and as you can see on the map, the, the land between them, uh, that little red dot in the middle of the map, um, had access to the Great Sea, which made it useful for trade. So these two larger nations were constantly trying to overtake that land. Um, and that land, which we're going to refer to right now as Canaan, uh, was made up of a bunch of little nations and kingdoms, uh, which were often easily trampled by the military superpowers on either side. So in order to protect themselves from these two military superpowers, these smaller nations would often form treaties. And sometimes two smaller nations would form an alliance to attempt to stand up to whatever nation was trying to attack them. Uh, but more often, they would actually form a treaty with, with either one of those larger two nations, either Egypt or Mesopotamia, in exchange for protection. When this form of treaty was established, the understanding was that they were not equals in relationship to one another. You know, Egypt or Mesopotamia called the shots and the little podunk nation pledged their loyalty to the larger nation. In exchange for that loyalty, they received the benefits of protection and oftentimes a land grant, okay? So the larger nation would grant them a plot of land and say, if you're loyal, we're going to let you have this land, we're going to let you have your society, we're going to let you have your kingdom, but we're going to be able to call in a few favors on you from time to time. So that's a kind of covenant that we actually see sort of modeled at the beginning of Genesis. It's familiar, right? So this sort of covenant happened all the time, and the covenant that we see at the beginning of Genesis kind of has some parallels to the covenant that, that we would see in biblical times. So Genesis 1 and 2 give us uh, complementing accounts of God creating the heavens and the earth and all that's in them. And in Genesis 2, we, we encounter the first covenant to be found in the Bible. It's a very basic covenant, but a covenant all the same. So after God creates the heavens and the earth and all that's in them, God creates humanity in His image and sets humanity above all the rest of the created order. And He places humanity in the Garden of Eden to care for His beloved creation. So just like a, a larger nation would give a smaller nation a land grant, God gives the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve. And they're given free reign to care for the garden in relationship to God and one another, where they will be under God's care and, and have all of their needs provided for. That is, as long as they want to be under God's care. Because you see, just like a smaller nation would have to pledge their loyalty to a larger nation in order to enter into covenant with them, God gave Adam and Eve the same choice. And this is because of God's love for humanity, which always comes before rules in the Bible. So anywhere you see God issuing rules in the Bible, so we're going to even look at, at His covenant with Moses and the Ten Commandments, before you ever see God 
issue rules in the Bible. Love always comes first. Love always comes first. So it's, it's not like um, God placed humanity in a garden and told them that he would only love them if they followed his one rule, but, but rather the simple fact that God lovingly created humanity and placed them in an environment where all their needs were provided for was an act of love in itself. In creating us in his image, God chose us in love. And God simply wanted to give us the opportunity to choose him back. So we read in in verses 15 through 17 of Genesis 2, the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and care for it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So instead of creating humans as, as robots programmed only to be loyal to God, God gave us humans a choice. We could either choose to live by God's definition of good and evil, or we could choose to define good and evil for ourselves. Of course, that would require breaking the covenant agreement with God by eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And and most of us here likely know what happens next, right? A a crafty serpent comes along and convinces uh, the woman that the fruit looks pretty tasty, and she gives it to the man. He's like, "Uh, okay, and he eats it. Um, And uh, and then they break the covenant, right? You know, they, they choose their world over God's world. Their definition of good and evil over God's definition of good and evil. And in chapter 3, we find God cursing humanity because of it. Now, is this because God was so enraged at humanity that he flew off the handle? You know? No. A a little understanding of of covenants can, can help us here. So blessings and curses were a part of each covenant established in biblical times. If a covenant was honored by the weaker party, certain, quote, blessings would be secured, all right? So for humanity in the Garden of Eden, blessings were apparent. Adam and Eve were to be equal partners, walking side by side as they cared for creation, which had been placed under their authority. Food would be plentiful. Their relationships with God and one another would be harmonious. There would be no pain in childbirth, no sickness, no death. Right? So the, the blessings were abundant. But on the other hand, if a covenant was broken, curses ensued. All right? So blessings were the, the good results of a covenant, and curses were what happened if a covenant was broken. Um, and in Adam and Eve's case, this, this meant pretty much the reversal of all the blessings that they would have had in the Garden of Eden. So we read about these curses in uh, verse, verses 16 Uh, through 19 of chapter 3, and I'll just summarize them for you. Uh, Childbirth would now be painful and risky. Adam and Eve, instead of living in a harmonious partnership, are set at odds with one another in this ongoing power struggle. The ground, instead of effortlessly bearing fruit, will now bear thorns and thistles. And we have pesticides and fertilizer now. And work, instead of being meaningful and fulfilling, would now be meaningless 
and empty. And lastly, humans will not live forever, but will rather work the ground until they return to it. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. That was the truth we acknowledged this past Wednesday on Ash Wednesday. Right? When you come forward and you receive the ashes, you are told, dust you are, to dust you shall return. Repent and believe the gospel. Right? And as we can see in the story of, of Adam and Eve, all creation is now under the, that power of sin and death. Adam and Eve's choice to define good and evil for themselves had much bigger consequences than, than just their own personal relationship with God. Because of their sin, all creation was fractured, you know, like a, like a bomb going off. It sent out shockwaves in every direction, and we, we still feel the effects today. You know, all creation, instead of being subject to God, has been subjected to the power of sin and death, and God's good world has been and continues to be fractured by humans who want to attempt to define good and evil for themselves. This is why the cross has to be bigger than just our personal salvation. Because it's not just us humans that need rescuing, it is all creation. A couple of weeks ago, we read from Romans 8, which says that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of late childbirth up until the present time. You know, we, we hear the, the groans of creation when we see natural disasters occur. You know, like the, the one uh, that we just saw this past week. We, we hear the groans of creation when we see war. We, we hear the groans of creation when we see a family in grief. And we're reminded that these things are, are not the way that they're supposed to be, right? Life in the world is not the way it's supposed to be. Something is wrong. We know it deep within us because that image that God placed on us in our creation still cries out. We know. We remember. Something deep inside of us remembers. So where does Genesis 3 leave us? Without hope, destined to suffering for the rest of eternity? Thanks be to God, quite the opposite. Because even in the midst of the curses we find in Genesis 3, we encounter God's mercy. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, God could have just ruled humanity a failed experiment and given up on them altogether. You know, the understanding was if Adam and, ate, or Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that they would die. So, so God was well within his rights to just wipe them out then and there on the spot. But he didn't. Instead, God provided them with clothing and put them outside the garden away from his presence. So, did God not hold fast to his word, or is there more to the story? We find the answer in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, where God is addressing the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve. He says, Cursed are you, above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her, your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, I know there's probably a lot of people in here that don't like snakes, but it's about more than that. It's about more than, than just everybody not liking snakes. 
Because who would this offspring of the woman be who would crush the head of the serpent? None other than Jesus Christ, who the Bible refers to as the new Adam. On the cross, Jesus defeated sin, and by rising again, he defeated death. Even though the the serpent struck his heel on the cross, he ultimately crushed its head by rising again in victory. Do you see what's happening here? Even in Genesis 3, in the very beginning of your Bible, it's already looking ahead to Jesus. And by seeing Jesus' death and resurrection foreshadowed at the beginning of the Bible, we can begin to see the magnitude of what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus was part of God's plan from the beginning. And what follows in your Bibles is a story of God continuing to pursue us in love and continuing to choose us time and time again, even when we don't choose Him. Now, of course, the question for us today is, what will we choose during this Lenten season? Will we choose our way or will we choose God's way? One practical way for us to to choose God's way is to practice fasting during Lent. On Ash Wednesday, I I issued a a challenge that um, I'm going to give you guys again this morning. Um, This Lenten season, I, I would like us all to pick one thing to give up and a spiritual discipline to to take up in its place. Um, And to help you in choosing what to give up, I want you to simply ask yourself, is there anything in my life that's standing between me and God? Maybe it's food or alcohol or social media or a, a comfort that we use to distract ourselves instead of turning our hearts toward God. You know, what, whatever it is for you, ask God for help in surrendering it to Him. And then in its place, take up a spiritual discipline like Bible reading or prayer. You know, so for example, if you decide to, to give up chocolate and you find yourself craving some, turn to God in prayer. Or if you give up social media and you find yourself tempted to log on, uh, turn to God's Word. A great way to do that is to install a Bible app on your phone, delete your social media app, and put your Bible app where your social media app used to be on your home screen. That way, every time you get on autopilot and go to click on it, you'll click on your Bible app and you'll be like, oh, I'm reading my Bible. Um, so anyway, um, that, that's, a, that's a good way to do it. Um, but... Uh, You know, the point of all this is not to earn points with God or to prove something to God. It's simply to do the opposite of what we witness in the Garden of Eden. You know, to allow God to call the shots on your life instead of attempting attempting to call your own shots. You know, to submit your heart and life to God so that you might experience the new life He has in store for each of us in Jesus. So I pray that we can experience that new life together this Lenten season as we turn our hearts back to God and as we walk with Jesus to the cross, which is a whole lot bigger than we might realize as we approach Easter. Let's pray about that. God, I just thank you for uh, this story this morning that we find right at the beginning of our Bibles. 
that tells us not only about our need for salvation, but Lord, about your promise for salvation. God, I, I thank you that, that Jesus was part of your plan all along. God, that, that even when we chose sin and death over life in your presence, you still loved us. And you instituted a plan that we would read about throughout the rest of our Bibles that, that would, would culminate with the cross. And so, God, as, as we just journey through the, the rest of this story, Lord, would you just help us to stand in awe of the cross this Easter? Lord, and in, in awe of Jesus' victory over it. And Lord, would it just not only help us to appreciate it, but Lord, would, would you help us to be able to be witnesses to that message? Uh, Lord, would you, would you give us insight and understanding into why we need the cross and why other people need it as well. Uh, Lord, we need your grace. And so uh, we just humble ourselves before you and ask that you would come into our hearts and lives and just fill us with your presence this Lenten season. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.